the abortion debate and its impact on this year's election. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe, numerous states banned abortions outright, not Florida. Even with the Republican governor and legislature, the toughest restrictions to date include a ban on the procedure after 15 weeks. How will this issue play out in our November gubernatorial race? Also, school-aged children across Florida are in need of food while classes are out. We'll look at efforts to make sure none of those children go without eating. And finally... And I learned that loneliness is not so much about how many people are around you. Loneliness is a feeling that comes up if you're not in tune with your environment. Julian Sanchez rode a boat across the Atlantic to get you to think more about your carbon footprint. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for joining us. Nearly 150 new laws went into effect in Florida on Friday. Of course, making the news has been the 15-week abortion ban. It was temporarily halted, but is now in effect and in the courts. Others that went into effect include the, quote, Stop Woke Act, which restricts race-related topics in schools and the workplace. Then there's the Parental Rights and Education Law, dubbed by critics the Don't Say Gay Law. And other laws that will, of course, impact things like health care, law enforcement, local government, and there's even a new state dessert. Well, joining me now is Susan McManus, a University of South Florida Distinguished University Professor Emerita and political analyst. Susan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. All right, let's start with the big, big story, of course, the big law that's gotten a lot of attention. Florida's 15-week abortion ban. It bans nearly all abortions uh, after that cutoff time. Exemptions, of course, include if the mother's health is threatened or if there's a fatal fetal abnormality. It's in effect, also still in the courts, uh, after the injunction, followed by an appeal by the state. So what comes next? How long do you think it's going to be in the courts? Well, today, uh, the state asked to have the uh, case expedited straight to the Supreme Court, passing bypassing the District Court of Appeals. So I don't know when it'll actually occur or if it will, but it's like a bouncing ball and it's really difficult for people to follow. Uh, people have very, very strong opinions on this issue. It's rare that you talk to anyone that doesn't have an opinion about the whole issue of abortion and pro-life versus pro-choice. It's just a huge issue. And of course, Florida still allows abortions. It's not that it's eliminated all abortions, which is taking place in some other states right now. So we still allow them. It's just that it's become more restrictive. There is the uh, amendment in the state constitution that protects the right to privacy. And that's playing a role in this, in this law. Yes, it is. And from my reading of the state's arguments today to expedite the case to the Supreme Court, they're going to make the argument that uh, federal law and federal uh, rulings uh, outstrip or outweigh the uh, privacy rule in our constitution. It's sort of federal versus state. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how the argument's going to go. I just know that that's one of the things that the state has said that they're going to do to defend the bill that's in con- law that's under consideration. So, I mean, or, yeah. 
I mean, I I know not being a lawyer either, I understand. But <laughs> do you I mean, do you do you think though this could be go the same route as Roe v. Wade that it will just get overturned? I mean, you know, at the state level now. That'll be very interesting because, of course, the state Supreme Court now is very differently configured than the three previous cases that involved the privacy portion of the amendment. Uh, the court now is much, much more conservative. And I believe that almost all of them were appointed by Republican governors, including Charlie Crist, who at the time was a Republican when he appointed some of them. But, you know, Louise, one of the things that's not really talked about very much is this. People forget that Florida's Supreme Court has retention elections. It's not like the Supreme Court of the United States where someone's appointed for life. Every six years, because we have a term of office for six years, these Supreme Court justices whose term is nearing the end have to go up for a retention vote. Now, think about this. This year, five of Florida's seven Supreme Court justices have to be on the ballot as a retention. You either vote, yes, I want to keep them and give them another six-year term, or no, I don't. Well, think of that. We don't know when they're going to rule or how they're going to rule, but it could be that the courts, it's the Supreme Court itself, will become an object of a lot of campaigns, uh, depending on the ruling, but the court justices themselves are going to have to answer to the voters in yeah. November. See, this, uh, you're right. So this now is, this is what I, what I really want to get to, is how this issue plays out in November. And as you said, Florida still has abortions, but now it's just, again, because of this restriction, it's, it's only uh, before 15 weeks. A number of states just straight up got rid of it once the Supreme Court made its decision. But Florida's unique, as always, in every presidential election. It'll be unique in this midterm because we may choose the same governor or new governor. And DeSantis hasn't mentioned, but a lot of people think he, he may run for president in 24. How do you see in November this playing out for the governor? Well, let's start, first of all, with the Democratic primary, because there you have Charlie Crist and, uh, of course, Nikki Free being the main candidates. And they're sort of both on the same side on abortion. It's just that um, Nikki Freed says she's been consistent her whole life and opposing uh, abortion restrictions. And that she points to Charlie Crist having ruled at one time or appointed some justices and so forth. So really for Nikki Freed, this is the issue that will really help elevate her, elevate her if she's going to receive the nomination. This is the way that she would get it. It is true that right now among current registrants that about 20% more Democrats are women than men. Now, does that mean that all of them are on the same page on these two candidates? No. But we know that it's very clear Florida voters are going to have a very clear choice between Democrats who are against the Roe versus Wade ruling and DeSantis, likely, and you know, Republican nominee is against it. So we will, is for pro-life. We will have a very, very clear choice. So that kind of brings us to the point of 
what do Democrats think that they're going to get out of this issue? Because all of a sudden it's injected, uh, you know, a stimulus into their, uh, into their arms, so to speak, because they were trailing and still are in the polls on the governor's race. But they see this as a way to close the gap, both in terms of registration and turnout and votes for governor. So it's really going to be a big issue. Is it going to be the whole issue? That's what the Republicans say. No, it's more likely to be economic issues that people vote their pocketbooks. Democrats are arguing this is such a monumental issue that we're likely to bring over some crossover votes from Republican women, some men, and the independents who are a little bit younger. So, so it kind of comes down to turnout and demographics. The, as you, so as you point out, so you still have the Democratic uh, vote, uh, you know, that's coming up, and it is between Nikki Fried and Charlie Crist right now. The latest polls still have Crist ahead, but we don't, don't. Still plenty of time. Do you think that... Uh, Republicans in Florida keep the ban, keep abortion available, at least with the restrictions, uh, and not follow the other states, the other red states that have just gotten rid of it. In other words, that they're going to hold on to it way after the election. Or do you see them maybe going the route of any of these other states? That's a big question that I really can't answer. But I can tell you one thing that, of course, DeSantis has spoken very strongly in favor of protecting um, right to life. And, you know, we, we don't know what Republicans will do after the election. And that's exactly why Democrats are also putting that as part of their strategy of saying fairly or unfairly, well, if you vote for the Republicans, you're just voting to to eliminate abortion rights because as soon as the election is over and the legislature goes back into session, they're just gonna vote to eliminate it altogether or, or move, there's been talk of moving to a, a six week, um, you know, abortion access limit. Yeah, do you think, Susan, do you think though that politicians are, are gonna use this issue, just the abortion issue as a pawn when voters want resolution? That's always a tough question to answer, the motives of people running for office. We do have a lot of newcomers running for state legislature, a lot of younger people running. I think it's very interesting. Uh, but I tell you, a, a bigger issue for me is the young vote, because Democrats depend upon the younger vote much more than Republicans do. And their turnout rates, I mean, the percentage of registered you know gen zers and millennials wasn't really great even in the presidential election a lot of people just point to numbers but if you look at rate the percentage it turned out it, it wasn't really terrific and so the big question is is abortion by itself enough to get out the younger vote which is critical to democrats to which some are saying it's not by itself enough but cumulatively, if you add the abortion issue, you add uh, gay rights, gay marriage, uh, gun restrictions, trans issues, all and climate all together, the package or the, the sort of cumulative approach of the Democrats on those issues might do a better job of 
energizing this younger electorate than just abortion by itself. And, you know, there are a couple of things, other laws I want to get to. I wonder how they may play out for the younger voter. Just want to mention again, I'm talking with Susan McManus, uh, University of South Florida, distinguished university professor emerita and a political analyst talking about the, the state laws that went into effect last Friday, more than 100 of them. And, you know, of course, talking about the big ones right now. You can find more information about those laws, by the way, on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Uh, the other one that, and it's kind of disappeared because of, again, because of the d- abortion story, uh, was the quote, again, Stop Woke Act. Uh, the acronym stands for Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees. And basically, this one restricts race-related topics in schools, in the workplace, um, there was pushback in the law, on the law in the courts on the claims that it violates first right uh, First Amendment rights, but the courts haven't granted any injunction on this. Politically, what what is this law trying to accomplish? Again, it's trying to make sure that there's um, less bias from a liberal perspective. The conservatives are concerned that there be less bias in the teachings about identity politics, whether it be race or gender or so forth. That's kind of what it's about. And what did the Republicans try, because they pushed that through very quickly. You know, how do you see them wanting to use that? Well, I see it. It's used in conjunction with the other one, which has gotten a lot more attention, the disillusion, or excuse me, the... um, The parental rights? About parental rights and don't say gay, Bill. That's... And they're both involving education. And that, of course, is a big part of our budget. It's an important issue in this state, and it's important to the state's future. But I think they sort of tie the two together because obviously the don't say gay, which was never in the legislation, as you know, that terminology was a a brand that was put on very successfully by Democrats, but very misleading in terms of the actual content. And basically, keep schools from teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity in the K through third grade, but it extends beyond that because it also includes beyond that uh, something that's not age appropriate or developmentally inappropriate for students that are beyond third grade. But the key is, again, it's the materials, what's being taught, the, the right of, of parents or, you know, individual advocacy groups to go in and look at the school curriculum and look at things like library books and whatever. It gives the public the right to sue if the school district is not adhering from the parent's perspective and so on and so forth. And it basically, whereas the first one we talked about sort of outlawed critical race theory, this one, um, talks about the fact that you can't have CRT in any materials. So the two are really tied together. So what has this done? It has extremely elevated the role of school board elections in our state. I see record numbers of school board candidates running. Uh, This is certainly an outcome of these two bills that were passed. And also it's not very well known by a lot of voters that the school board elections, because they're nonpartisan, are on August 23rd, not November 8th. Right. 
And, you know, we, we've talked about these over and over again and again, just the, the question of the CRT, the critical race theory, in, in books and schools and not found as often as, as uh, Republicans have pointed out. They thought they've seen it. Um, just to finish up here, looking at the gov- coming back to the governor's race, uh, again, polls do have uh, Governor DeSantis ahead. Charlie Chris is ahead of Nikki Freed in, in uh, the Democratic race. But what do you see playing out over the summer as things now finally start to, to heat up and, and now we're starting to put attention on these races? Well, also, you're already starting to see political ads go up on television and certainly oh, they're yes. all over social media already. <laughs> already. Uh, the interesting thing there is historically Floridians are a hard sell in the summer. Uh, people just really put politics at the back of the burner, so to speak. This may be a different kind of summer, though, based on the publicity and the strong feelings that people have about these vital issues facing our state and the nation. But um, it's just true that it's hard to grab people's attention and to sustain it that long. Plus, I go back to the new saturation issue. We have a history of where something that's really hot right now now and gets massive attention in the snap of a finger, a brand new issue can surface that totally redirects voters of, uh, you know, what they're thinking about and what issues they might vote on. So that's another unknown. We just don't know what's going to be hot and so pressing by the time that we vote in November. That is so true. One thing is important now. And before you know it, everybody is talking about something else next week and and you just never never know i i'm going to end things on a light note or in this case a sweet note um (laughs) just for fun just for some fun uh the strawberry shortcake was named you know florida's official state dessert uh and of course it was a big debate folks in key west not happy about this because it's between key lime and and strawberry shortcake do do you land on it on on something here on this issue do you have do you have have a part you partial on this well, I'm from Strawberry area, but I love key limes because my family was in Citrus. So I guess I'm sort of happy with the fact that the strawberry shortcake is the official dessert of Florida, but the key lime pie remains Florida's official pie. I know I know folks at Key West weren't happy with it, but yes, that that's how they tried to find the happy middle ground. But Susan McManus, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so much to talk about. We'll be talking again as we get closer and closer to November. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Susan McManus again, University of South Florida, distinguished university professor emerita and a political analyst. And again, follow on all of those new laws that went into effect last week on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, where can you find meals for kids during the summer while school is out? Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Kids are out for the summer, and while many may like having no homework for the students that rely on going to school in order to get free and reduced meals, this season can be hard on families. And that was true even before inflation and supply chain issues have made the average grocery bill very high. But don't get discouraged. Despite more challenges this summer, kids can still eat at hundreds of schools and libraries across South Florida. Joining me now... WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Kate, great great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so what, what kind of programs are out there across the region so that to make sure the kids have food available, even though school's not in session? I'm thinking about all four counties uh, that we covered. Let's start in Monroe. 
Sure. Yeah, there are hundreds of, of locations across uh, South Florida where kids can eat. Um, and it's pretty similar across our, our four South Florida counties. Um, you know, schools, public schools are hosting a lot of these locations, as well as public libraries, community centers. Um, in Monroe County, there's also a, a local foundation called the SOS Foundation. Uh, that has uh, food banks and, and meal programs that folks can turn to in the Keys. Um, but for across South Florida, um, you know, again, these programs are for kids um, up to age 18. Uh, you don't have to be attending summer school to be able to get a meal at the public schools. Um, and if you're not sure where to go, you can go to summerbreakspot.org. Um, or you can call 211 or text food or comida to 304-304. Um, and school staff have told me it's probably best uh, to call your school ahead of time just because some of the times and, and locations can change. You know, there are a couple of layers to what's making this more challenging to feed kids over the summer. And I wanted to start with the changes in federal regulations. What happened? So there's been a series of changes at the federal level over the past two years because of COVID. At the beginning of the pandemic, Congress allocated a lot more funding and they waived a lot of the rules around how and what kids can eat. And that gave schools a lot more flexibility over what they could serve, especially with the supply chain issues that we're still seeing. You know, so if there was a cereal shortage or, or a chicken shortage, schools could serve something else that day. Um, and over the past two years, every student in the country has been able to eat at school for free, which is incredible, which is something that advocates have, have pushed for for a long time. Uh, but that's going away. A couple weeks ago, Congress did pass a last minute compromise to extend some of this pandemic aid uh, so that all students will keep being able to eat for free through the end of the summer. But starting in the fall, districts will go back to sort of the old way of, of charging some students um, unless the schools can can get grants or, or other ways uh, to cover all of their students. And, and are these programs, by the way, uh, just for the kids or could it help the whole family? So for the summer programs, that's my understanding. It's for kids, you know, 18 and under. Uh, so, so just for kids. But there are uh, some local programs I know that are targeted for seniors as well. Um, some programs that are at, again, community centers or, or public libraries. You know, you just mentioned it too, how, you know, we've seen this, the, the, these supply chain issues affect grocery stores and just everyday life, things that are not as readily available. How has it affected these summer programs? Like, has it been a really big deal? So it's, it's affected them the summer and, and during the regular school year as well. You know, it's something they're still definitely seeing, talking with the folks who are who are running some of these school meal programs. Um, it's And it extends beyond food as well. You know, I heard a lot about sporks. People are having trouble getting sporks lately, uh, getting cutlery, you know, things like trays and plates, uh, but definitely affecting food too. Um, you know, I, I've heard of different schools, you know, they put in an order of, you know, mixed vegetables, say, but then they get something totally different. You know, they get a huge order of yucca or something. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, a Monroe County food service director told me their delivery day is like Christmas morning because you just don't know what you're going to get when wow. you open those boxes. Oh yeah. My goodness. I yeah. mean, look, at least there is food and that's a good thing that kids still have the opportunity. Kate, thank mm -hmm. you so much. I really appreciate the time. 
Sure, thank you. Again, Kate Payne, WLRN's education reporter. Again, talking about where kids uh, can find meals in South Florida during the summer because they, they count on getting this during the school year. And again, you can follow her reporting and all the information that she was giving out. We have it on our social media, WLRN Sundial. I want to turn over now to Paco Velez. He is the president and CEO of Feeding South Florida. Paco, always a pleasure talking with you. Yes, sir. Thanks for having us. You know, Feeding South Florida supports the uh, federal USDA program during the summer, the summer break spot program. Remind us real quickly how that works. Uh, so the uh, the summer food service program uh, allows us to provide free meals to kids over the summer months anywhere they congregate in a in a, um, a low income area or an area where kids have a high free reduced price lunch participation. Um, so we we get the meals, we prepare them in our kitchen, we distribute into these sites whether they're uh, apartment complexes, uh, community centers, really anywhere the children congregate or in a camp, um, the kids eat for free. And uh, and we do that every day for the entire summer. And then the federal program reimburses those meals uh, to Feeding South Florida or whoever is sponsoring those meals. I remember talking with you during the holidays and especially like during Thanksgiving time. And your message was, thanks for helping us on the holiday. But don't forget that we need help when kids get out of school. Um, what do you need the most right now? Is it volunteers? Is it food donations, money donations? What goes further? Well, the, the, as Kate mentioned, I mean, we're, we're struggling with, with, uh, with all parts of our, of our supply chain. Uh, the biggest thing right now is, is, is fueling our fleet. Uh, we, we run on diesel just like, just like the big boys, um, do. And so we're all over the, the, the community, we're all over the state, we're bringing food across the country. So monetary donations are the biggest thing right now. Um, but the the biggest reason I mentioned, uh, don't forget about year round, is because one of the things that happened during the pandemic that people don't realize happens every summer is kids were home uh, from from school during the pandemic. Right. And, and families had to figure out, do I get childcare or is it cheaper to not go to work? Uh, what's more expensive, childcare or 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 not going to work? And and so our families have to struggle with that every single summer because the kids are home. And so the so we try to help them uh, with food, uh, but at the same time, utility goes up, fuel goes up, everything goes up for our families. And and so we try to help make ends meet by providing not only food for the kids during the summer months, but also providing food for families or groceries for families during those summer months. Yeah, I remember talking about how the pandemic impacted parents. Now that people are back out and they're working more, is the is the need shrunk or is it still growing? It's actually it's it's a it's a weird combination of both. It's it's we've gone from 1.5 million people at the height of height of the pandemic that we've been serving it's it's stabilized and then it went back up to well, up to about 1.1 million individuals what has increased so that decreased a little bit but what has increased is the frequency the dollar just isn't stretching as far as it used to or the snap benefits food snap benefits are not stretching as far as it used to so the families are having to come to us a lot more often and I wondered, for, you know, because you talked about, for example, you know, fueling your trucks, you know, has been a, a big challenge with cost of, of, of gas and fuel right now. But uh, with inflation, I'm wondering, how are donations right now? Donations, actually, South Florida has been amazing, uh, whether it's been uh, after a hurricane, 
after a government shutdown during the pandemic, folks in, in many different ways. Uh, folks continue to donate their funds and we appreciate those funds and please keep those funds coming in. But families continue to come out and volunteer as well. So during the pandemic, uh, our volunteers were putting their health at risk to make sure that we were getting boxes ready to go out to our families. And now with with the, the, the surge in fuel costs, our families are, are our volunteers are still coming out to volunteer, even though it's going to cost them a little bit more to get out here to volunteer. So South Florida has been and and I don't need to tell you guys this. You guys benefit from from the from the from our community as well. You guys are uh, have a great support network. South Florida is just an amazing place to live and, and folks really come out and support when an organization is struggling. And right now with um with with the supply chain shortages and our in uh and the high cost of of operation including fuel and and, and and soon to be rent uh we're we're thankful for for south florida continuing to support us you know i, I was thinking about what kate just said a moment ago how you know some schools are they, they they order something and they get something else and this goes to the supply chain issue right because sometimes some some products are not available i wondered how often that happens to you and where how do you get around that do you do you have other places you can go and call to see if you can so, get any of the stuff you want so i was i was i was feeling the, <laughs> the the pain that no pun intended that kate was 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 sharing uh, because we ordered cereal for our summer food service program there's a specific kind of cereal that you use um, it comes in bowls it has a peel off top and so the the, the cereal container itself doubles as a bowl we ordered it weeks in advance before, and we ordered by the truckload. So it's a whole tractor trailer load of cereal. And and it wouldn't come in and it wouldn't come in. Eight weeks later, it still hadn't come in. And and we were about to start this program and, and it didn't come in. When it finally did come in uh, a week and a half into the program, it was the wrong cereal. It was not in bowls, it was in boxes. And so because we have a great volunteer network, our volunteers were able to come in, uh, open up those boxes and put them and, and the boxes didn't contain enough cereal um, to serve to be eligible for for the for the meal. So they were dumping all these cereals into containers and making sure that we were that we had enough cereal in each container to serve the kids. And that container doubled as a bowl. So we were fortunate that we have volunteers to help with that. But 100 percent, the supply chain is completely out of whack. And we have to we have a twelve uh, a ten to twelve week lead time if we're going to order anything. So we ordered our Thanksgiving turkeys a couple of weeks ago. You know, we we it's hard to tell how long the inflation and the cost of things will be up. It's hard to tell when the supply chain issues will be resolved. But I I don't know if you have the chance to think about, you know, this is these are challenging times, and I don't know if you have the chance to sit and think about, you know, maybe there's something we can do to change our methods. So that if we ever find ourselves in a situation again, you know, we know how to handle it. Or is it you just deal with things as they hit, hit you? No, I, 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 I have thought about this and it's about vertically integrating this organization. Right. So if we are we are a uh, an emergency uh, response organization when it comes to food. When people are in, a, in their own emergency, their own crisis, we, we help them during that time. So. If they need help two, three times, uh, uh, two, three days a month, then we're going to be there for them or during a disaster or anything else. But we have to figure out how we 
can become more resilient as a community and as an organization, which means that we have to start thinking about processing our own food, our own cereals, our own fr fruits and vegetables, yeah. um, and, and having that available so we're not reliant on, on other parts. And this is what I share with, with anyone that will listen. Being reliant on other people when it comes to food, um, whether it's another part of the country or another country in general, it's 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 hurting it's hurting our families. That, that is a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Only because of time, briefly. You know, there are families finding themselves in a new situation here now, with food insecurity they did not know before, and that causes a lot of anxiety. What's the message to them, to help them know that look, there's a way out, and and there's places to go. The message is we're here to serve. We're going to be here to serve. We've been here for over forty years, and we're going to continue to be here for you. Come. Um, let us help you, and and we know we can help you get through this. Um, and nothing, nothing is, uh, nothing is impossible. And we will make sure that uh, all the information anyone needs to find you, we're going to post it up everywhere we can. Paco, it's always a pleasure, and thank you for the work that you do. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys, very much. All right. Again, Paco Velas, President, and CEO of Feeding South Florida. And again, we'll post on our website, WLRN.org, and also on our social media at WLRN Sundial, everything you need to know about the organization and if you need help, where you can find it. Well, still to come, a man who wants to reduce his carbon footprint, and he just rowed a boat across the Atlantic to make his point. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. All right, I want you to think about this for a second. Imagine being alone, literally miles and miles from another human being for almost four months. That was life for Julian Sanchez, who took more than 100 days to row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean and land on Florida's coast. He left Europe. But then he got on a bicycle. Once he was here, he got on a bicycle and he rowed all the way from Florida up to Pittsburgh. Why do all that? Well, because he wants to raise awareness of our carbon footprint. We spoke with him recently about his journey, and when we talked, he had just arrived in Pittsburgh. Julian, I mean, again, taking this long trip again, uh, you know, across the Atlantic and then a bike ride from Florida to Pittsburgh, taking almost half a year, what was the motivation? I was very privileged as a young person to travel around different parts of the world. Um, and doing that, you obviously, you know, you use a lot of airplanes, a lot of buses, a lot of cars. Um, you basically live for many people at once. And um, I love traveling, but I'm also an athlete. So I wanted to find something where I can, could combine both passions and also do something good for the world. And at some point, I actually did my research and I realized, hey, there is people who row across oceans, there is people who cycle across continents. And um, I basically started training and at some point realizing, hey, this is something that I'm confident that I could do. And the best thing about it is because it is a little bit out of the ordinary that I could actually even send a message to you know, make the world a little bit better. And if that's the way that I can contribute, I'm very happy to do that. So it was really um, the motivation to, you know, to, to show other people that these things where we usually shy away from these impossible challenges, that we can, uh, we, we can master them. And I think, you know, combating 
climate warming also seems like an impossible challenge for most people. So I basically want to give people a little bit of hope to say, okay, not everything is lost. If we really put down the work and if we believe in ourselves and if we're consistent, we can solve those challenges. You knew how long this journey was going to be, not just rowing across the Atlantic, but then obviously taking the bike ride from Florida up to Pittsburgh. What kind of preparation did you have to do physically to be ready to do this, but also mentally? Yeah, the the preparation um, was actually incredible. So it took me like three and a half years to get to the level where I felt comfortable. But we're not only talking about the physical aspects. So as you say, it's it's mostly also about confidence and uh, to be mentally prepared. So in order to be able to do an ocean row, one of the things that are most important is to actually be very comfortable and confident at sea. So it required a lot of courses like sea survival, seamanship, uh, first aid at sea, um, just also to be able to navigate properly. So I basically took it, uh, first of all, that I started with all the technical stuff. I had to learn everything about boating because I didn't come from a boating community back home. Um, I started rowing for this project that was four or five years ago. So I started on flat water, um, then onto the coastals and then uh, onto the ocean. So the training, the physical training was constant, but the mental part definitely outweighed everything else. So I would probably say that it's 80 to 90 percent a mental challenge. And one of the things that helped me most was actually um, to be a self-sufficient person before. So through my traveling days, through uh, going to many remote places on the planet before, being able to spend time by yourself, that's something that really helps. So if you if you really know yourself and if you're comfortable uh, spending time by yourself, that's definitely something you need there. But I've, of course, I've, I've had a lot of experts involved. So there was a physical trainer, there was a mental coach, and there was even a weather expert, like a person with which I, I would plan the strategies for being out there on the ocean. So you, you, it was a team effort. You cannot do it by yourself. I can only imagine. I mean, so you started in Portugal. You made your way across, ended up at Lighthouse Point in Broward County. First start, just briefly tell me that first day when you launch, yes. what was that like and, and what was the day like for you? Uh, that, that's actually a very curious feeling because everyone tells me before, hey, you're going to be so nervous, you're going to be so excited. For me, honestly, because of the three and a half years of preparation, it honestly felt like another training row. And that's what I tried to, that's how I tried to approach it. I just felt, okay, this is going to be a bit longer than what I've, than what I've usually done. But um, it's not an overstatement to say that the preparation was so intensive that I was actually really relieved to start with the expedition. So as soon as I went out on the ocean, it felt like you know all the to-do lists, all the things you worry about in normal life just fell off. And uh, I could just focus on rowing. Um, no one obviously said that it was easy, but the good thing is it was very simple. So you just had to focus on a few things. So uh, the first two days, my only concern was potential seasickness. I didn't get it. And from then on, I actually really enjoyed the whole ride. You know, during the whole time, who are you in touch with? I mean, are you able to, you know, connect with family and friends, or did you have anybody with anybody around you that you could talk to? I had daily contact with my weather expert. Um, I had a satellite phone, and he would send me each morning an update about what the wind, what the waves, and what the currents would do. Based on that, I would make navigational decisions. 
but uh, the only person that I would really be in touch with was my was my brother back home, and I think we we called via satellite phone every ten or fifteen days just to check in to see how I was doing, and he was also the person that managed all my social media accounts, so all my friends and family they could send messages to him, and he would bundle them all together into one large email. So once a week, it was always Mondays. Mondays I was I would get like I don't know 50 messages that I could read. But we did it that way so that I don't get overwhelmed by incoming messages every 30 minutes or something, <laughs> because obviously uh, you got to focus on the rowing. But no. it, it was nice to sometimes get some moral boosters. And by the way, I just want to know what kind of navigation system you have. Was it computer yeah. or were you doing like the old, you know, uh, explorers of the past? You <laughs> use the compass and the, <laughs> and the stars. Um, you know what? Uh, the compass and the stars, um, that's a necessary backup for sure. But the good thing is um, I, I was on a seaworthy vessel. It's a rowing boat, yes, but it's got all the equipment that the larger boats have. So I had an AIS a system where I could actually track other ships. They could see me and my GPS position too. I had a radio, of course. So I could call other ships. And um, yeah, those are like absolutely crucial pieces of equipment because if you consider that I'm just in a 20-foot uh, rowing boat, like the big cargo ships and the cruising ships, they obviously don't see me visually. So uh, it's very important to make your presence known, at least on the GPS. And I got to say, like that navigational equipment worked perfectly well. But obviously there were days where you didn't have that. And um, it, it came in handy to, to know the stars a little bit. But uh, I have to say it was easy, easy enough. Uh, during the day, I just had to follow the sun uh, going from east to west. And then uh, at night, you very yeah, rapidly get to know the night sky a little bit. So, yeah, that was definitely that was really exciting. I'm speaking with Julian Sanchez. He set out this year on a zero-emission journey from Paris, France, to Pittsburgh here in the United States on a bike and a rowboat. It included a solo row expedition, 5,000 miles to cross the Atlantic Ocean. He ended up here at Lighthouse Point in Broward County, all to advocate for a more emission-free lifestyle. And you can find out more about his wild adventure on our social media at WLRN Sundial. I just think about, because you said it, you have to be able to be alone. And I wondered for you, did you feel just the solitude or did you feel lonely? That's a very, very good question. And you know what? I learned a very profound thing about loneliness out there because I had a lot of time to reflect. And I learned that loneliness is not so much about how many people are around you. Loneliness is a feeling that comes up if you're not in tune with your environment. So at sea, I actually felt very, very in tune because, first of all, I loved it out there. Secondly, I'm also very good with my own company. But for example, I had a group of I think you call them dolphin fish, the mahi-mahis. They followed me for 5,000 kilometers from the Canaries all the way to Puerto Rico. So it was the same group of 10 to 15 fish. And I always had wildlife around me. And I, I just felt really at one with my environment. So I didn't even get lonely, even though I was 131 days out at sea. But the weird thing is sometimes, and I think everyone can relate in daily life, if you don't feel like you're in an environment where you really feel like you belong feelings of loneliness come up even if you're surrounded by people so for me that was a really powerful insight but i also got to say um it was probably 
the reason why I succeeded was that uh, I felt really comfortable at sea and I really enjoyed the experience, even though I'm not going to pretend it was obviously uh, very, very hard rowing 13 to 15 hours every day to make progress. Day to day, what's it like? You know, how much are you eating? If you're rowing for that many hours, you got to have a lot of calories. What was what was your typical exactly. day like? Um, typical day um, looks like the following. I usually did um, five rowing shifts. So they would either be two and a half, three or three and a half hours. I would obviously change that depending on the, on the daily conditions. So I would row between 13 to 15 hours. That's the actual rowing time. And uh, everything after the rowing, it, it's it's very, very simple. It's either going to be sleeping, it's going to be maintenance of the boat, or it's going to be eating. There's not a lot of space for anything else. And I tried um, to have a calorie intake of six to 7,000 calories every day. Um, so what I would do is after the end of each shift, I would have an expedition food meal that's around 1,000 calories. And usually you're so hungry that you eat that in like five minutes so that's already 4,000 calories as a base and the rest is really just things that you like things that you know you can eat every day on a daily basis but one of the very curious things about the ocean is everything tastes a little bit different on the ocean so you try everything on land before and you're sure you're gonna like the chocolate bars most and then you go out on the ocean and actually um, what you crave is something very different so Sometimes you have to eat stuff that you don't like anymore. Sometimes you find out love for new sweets that you didn't have before. But um, it's basically just getting in enough food to power you through. And uh, yeah, that's what my day looked like. And um, honestly, except for that, there wasn't much other except for enjoying wildlife or the stars. When you finally reached Lighthouse Point in Broward County, tell me, yeah. what, tell me that moment. What did you see and what was it like for you? Uh, it was actually absolutely incredible. So I've been at sea for so long. I've been out of touch with uh, with my my contact persons on land. So first of all, I didn't even know it was a Sunday. And second of all, I didn't know it was Easter Sunday. So when I came through the inlet, I didn't expect it at all. But there were, first of all, boats everywhere, loud music everywhere, people <laughs> celebrating, having <laughs> drinks. <laughs> And you, you got to imagine, like, I've been by myself for a very, very long time. So I thought, like, if this is the United States, it's absolutely incredible. And, I mean, you know the area, Lighthouse Point is, now I've seen large parts of the U.S. because I've cycled through it. It's probably one of the most beautiful areas uh, I've ever seen. So I was absolutely overwhelmed, but positively. And also the welcome that uh, I got at the marina there from the people who immediately helped me, who you know, um, welcomed me and my family with open arms. It, it was one of the most memorable days of my life. Oh, you know, I got to ask, I mean, do you remember any of the music you heard? What were they playing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure, but uh, it, it was definitely not the music that I had on board. Um, th that's another curious thing because uh, I, I lost a lot of electronics when uh, waves smashed into the cabin. So at the end, I only had seven audiobooks and seven different two-hour remixes of songs. So what I listened to on the ocean basically was nonstop the same thing. So it was really funny to go back into civilization and hear, okay, what are the actual songs that are on the charts right now? What are people, you know, uh, what are sports results? Who won the Super Bowl? <laughs> Those were like the questions I had, but um, 
it, it was it took a little bit of time to uh, catch up on everything but uh, yeah it, it was an incredible experience because it's just so out of the ordinary and you usually don't experience something like that all right so here's the thing you make it after 131 days to Florida, but that wasn't, as I said, that wasn't the end of your journey. Then you got on a bicycle and you mm-hmm. rode up to Pittsburgh. So, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, what's that like? You you spend all this time in a boat and so you're limited in your yeah. movements and now you're on land again. What was that like getting back on land? Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's very interesting, you know, because obviously uh, anytime I told people about the project, it was mostly about the ocean, bro, because that's by far the biggest part. So for me, even in my mind, I had already covered 12,000 kilometers. There were only 2,000 to go. And I basically, I just got a bike and I started cycling. But um, <laughs> I obviously forgot a little bit about the challenges that cycling presents by itself. So one of the best things uh, about rowing on an ocean is I never have to pitch my tent anywhere because I have my cabin. I can always just go in and sleep and it's already prepared. Now I, I actually, uh, you know, I had to look for accommodations every day. I cycled through some actually very remote states. So I wasn't very well informed, for example, about Virginia or West Virginia. So one day in West Virginia, which, which is a mountain state, I uh, had a lot of elevation gain to cover there. I ended up in a place which was 60 kilometers away from the next campground or hotel. So it was dark already. And, uh, yeah, you, you got to find a way to, to stay some, somewhere. And uh, luckily, and I really have to say, people in this country are really helpful and incredibly just, just, uh, interested in, in people that go off the path. So I had a lot of people who helped me out, people who let me stay, for example, to, to pitch my tent in their gardens, people uh, who gave me hotel rooms for free, something I've never had before in my life. So I have to say I've been treated very well in this country. And yeah, I made it in 12 days from Lighthouse Point to Pittsburgh. And again, that was Julian Sanchez, who rode a boat across the Atlantic in more than 100 days. He's trying to raise awareness of our carbon footprint that we all leave behind. By the way, the song you're hearing, this is called Salzburg from Oracles. Julian loved instrumental music, and he said that music like this helped him stay focused and pass the time while he's by himself out there in the middle of the Atlantic. He's on a short break right now, but he plans to cycle the Trans-Canadian Highway from the East Coast to the West Coast, again, continuing his human-powered journey across continents and oceans. Good luck to him. (laughs) That's our program for this Wednesday, July 6th. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to follow up on our solar panel conversation from last week. What is keeping some people from installing solar? We're going to be talking with the Miami Herald's Alex Harris, who joins us to also help us understand Miami-Dade County's the government's goal of reducing its carbon footprint. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. By the way, go to Facebook, Sundown Book Club. We mentioned the new book for July. We'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.